Welcome to The Greg Bennett Show. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. And this was a wonderful conversation with one of the world's greatest cyclists, then turned NBC commentator of the Tour de France and the Paris-Nice cycling races and just one of the all-round good guys. I truly enjoyed this conversation with Christian Vandervelde. He goes into his life as a cyclist and, and why he started the sport. And it's interesting to hear that his dad was also a multiple Olympian and professional cyclist. And he was just truly passionate about the sport from a very, very young age and then had a very long and successful career and just fascinating behind the scenes stories with Christian. I truly appreciate his time. I know I can't get to every question out there. And if you do want to have some follow-up questions with Christian, you can go to anyquestion.com forward slash Christian VDV. That's anyquestion.com forward slash Christian VDV. And you can ask him questions there. You can listen to his answers that are already there. And you can listen to all the other amazing experts that are on the platform answering questions and ask them questions as well. But a little bit of housekeeping just before we go on. I want to thank you for listening. And if you are enjoying the show, you really do me a huge favor if you do share it. I love the feedback. Please keep it coming. I understand I'm not perfect, so I'm happy to take a little bit of criticism along the way. But don't be too harsh on me. I'm enjoying these conversations with all these remarkable experts that I get to have. And finally, I really just hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. I just think it was really one of those fantastic episodes. And remember, success comes to those who endure just one moment longer. All right, today's guest is an icon in the world of cycling. He raced his bike for at the highest level for 15 years as a professional from 1998 to 2013, competing at the 2000 Summer Olympic Games and 18 Grand Tours with two top 10 performances and multiple team victories, including a fourth place at the Tour de France in 2008. And a year out from retiring, he had a brilliant win at the USA Pro Cycling Challenge. Post-retirement, He has built a second life in this world of commentating with NBC Sports. He's just absolutely brilliant what he does. And he's a celebrity Peloton instructor. We can get into that a little bit more later. But I've been a huge fan of his for many, many years. And it's just been a really great pleasure just to get to know him a little bit more on the Any Question platform. So it's an enormous honor and and privilege. So welcome and thank you for joining me on The Greg Bennett Show. Christian Vanderveld, how are you, mate? Very good. Thanks, brother. I appreciate that beautiful intro. Oh, you're more than welcome, mate. I am I am a huge fan and I don't know if we're similar in age, but I feel like uh, for much of your career was kind of the same time as much of my career. And i got to be honest, that's when I was really into the cycling world. So to have you now and, and be able to have this conversation, and I'm sure we'll have, you know, rewind the clock and reflect a little bit at your career. It's kind of exciting for me to have you here. But you, you've been up, you got up early this morning, right? You've already been working. Yeah, we've been working um, and it's great to be working again. So I'm calling Paris Nice and one of the benefits or silver linings, I should say, of COVID has been that we, instead of going to Stanford, Connecticut, which you know all too well at mm-hmm. NBC Sports, we get to do it from our basement. So I get up early, but it's not so bad because we're East Coast time, right? We're calling races in Europe. So we're six hours behind. And But my co-host, Bob Roll, unfortunately for him, he's all the on the West coast. So he <laughs> is hurting bad. And so it takes a while for him to wake up and he's been doing a great job, but no, it's, it's been great to be back in the thick of things again in the cycling world. Yeah. So when you're calling races now from your basement, you're basically all logging in and, and just calling the screen that's in front of you. How, how's that different from being in the studio in Connecticut? I mean, is it, you, do you still have a producer in your ear and everything else? Yeah. I mean, the producer, I mean, it honestly, it's like magic. The first time we did this, we were like, 
And I believe that we were one of the first or second sports. I think golf was first mm. when they were doing that remote. And then we did something right after that as we were one of the first starts to start going again. It's crazy. The magic that truly happens both over your own Wi-Fi or Internet and then also going over cellular service as well. So a lot of times I'll come downstairs and my microphone's still on and working and someone in NBC is talking to me. It's weird. Uh, but <laughs> the biggest problem I would say is, is not being with your co-host mm. and that's hard. And mm. then there's a little bit of delay, but not even being able to point things out or just gesticulate that, Hey, I'm going to come in here or just those kind of things. You just, so you have to have a really good rapport, I think with your co-host when, and luckily I do with Bob and I, I love the guy and, I hope he loves me, but we, I think we have a we have a good time together. I think Greg and I think that's the biggest part of of making this remote work su- succeed. Yeah, I, I love it. What time are you up this morning? Was it a three or four o'clock start? What was it? No, for dude, no, no, no. I'm oh. really it's it's my this is like a walk in park. I love it. I mean, it's I get up at six and just start checking. I'm I'm up after you, and you have no reason to be up. You're you're insane, <laughs> by the way. I do you're, have you're, reason. I have a four and a two year old, and I got to get some work done before they get up. Good point. <laughs> but we have shared that haven't we, the, our, our wake up times. And I do like that four and five o'clock in the morning and, and that really quiet time where you get to, you know, get a lot done. But the Tour de France is different though, dude. The Tour de France yeah. is not funny. When you get the three thirty in the morning, you know, and you're in hair and makeup way before, and you don't see the sun until you walk out of the building at noon every day, that gets old for wow. three weeks. For three weeks? Yeah, and you're just living on a different time pattern. So you, people are like, hey, you want to have dinner? I'm like, yeah, can you meet me at five? <laughs> like, <Yeah>. No. <laughs> wow. Late lunch. So, so are you doing the Tour de France in Connecticut or are you over in France for that and just going from hotel to hotel? Mm, I hate to be Debbie Downer, but yeah, we'll be back in Stanford yet again, at least for the, the studio segment of the tour. I believe that Bob and Phil Liggett will be on site again this year, which is nice for them. And especially for Phil as it's his 50th Tour de France. <laughs> 50. I love that. I mean, Phil Liggett. For anybody that hasn't, you know, heard me talk about him, he's been on the show. He actually does the the outro of this uh, podcast, but he's become a good friend of mine. And, and it was almost a career highlight for me to be able to call a race with him um, in triathlon in Slovakia last year. And I was like, oh, it's Phil Liggett. But that's how we actually connected. Phil Liggett was our connection. Um, and he said, I said to him, you know, Phil, we're we're building this any question app that Phil's on. And I said, you know, I, I really want to meet some guys that are sort of in the broadcasting space that are also ex-professional cyclists. And, and he said, yeah, I'll introduce you to Christian Vandervelde. And here we are. <laughs> love it. Love it. That, that came out of left field as well um, because it's rare that I get an email and usually they're, they're great emails or, or notes from Phil, but I, I love corresponding to Phil and see what's going on in his life, especially during COVID. You know, he was, mm. he was locked up in South Africa down there and he was starting to freak out because he couldn't get any of his beer back to the apartment. And, um, but anyway, Phil, Phil is an absolute legend and it's, it's always a little bit different to work with somebody that you grew up watching and yeah. emulating and thinking of all the time. So yeah, it, it's been very fun to work with Phil over the last, geez, it's almost been, this has been my ninth year. Yeah. Getting to work with him. Has he been a, you know, Paul Sherwin? And I, I believe you've known Paul Sherwin a much of your life as well. Right. And so you got to work with both of them for a little while. Yeah. I've, I've known Paul since I was 13 or 14 years old. So my, wow. he used to come. So my dad helped get when it was a Seven Eleven team, it was the only American team. Mm. And then it changed over to Motorola. And so my dad was the conduit in between the sponsorship of Motorola coming over to the 7-Eleven team since it was a Chicago based team. And that's where my family and I grew up at the time. And so Paul 
was the media liaison before he was doing commentary or during he was doing commentary. So he would always come over and have dinner with myself and family. And so I've known Paul, yes, since I was eighth grade, I want to say seventh or eighth grade, he used to come over all the time. So yeah, it's, it goes back a long time. And, you know, and fast forward to 2016 Olympics where Paul and I are just hanging out in Rio for a couple of weeks together and just laughing at each other and just saying like, can you believe that we're working? I mean, how strange is this? You know, uh, wow. I mean, I watched you grow up and now you're here with me and yeah, we miss Paul. I try not to get choked up when it, uh, mm-hmm. his name comes up in conversation, but yeah, he was a man. He was, he's one of those guys, you know, he's just one in a million people who's just the glue of anywhere he goes. He remembers the names of people. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just so unique. I mean, speaking Swahili, like, for example, we're talking about getting up early during the world championships, you go, go down and we'd be staying in this crappy hotel in, in Stanford, Connecticut. I'm sure you've done plenty of days up there. <laughs> you come downstairs. This is like one 30 in the morning is, you know, people are still at the bar and we're, we're waking up to go to, to, to work. And I hear all this ruckus and people are laughing. And I'm thinking the first thing that came to mind is like, it's gotta be Paul cracking jokes. <laughs> and there's Paul speaking Swahili better than the Africans who were behind the desk. And they're just looking at this white guy saying, what is going on? Why are you, first of all, in Stanford, Connecticut? Why, you know, why do you speak Swahili? And he grew up in the, I mean, he has such a great story. Yeah. We, we miss him entirely, but it's been very unique to be able to able to cut my teeth with two of the legends of broadcasting being Phil Paul. Yeah, seriously. And now with Bob Roll and, and it, it's great that they've almost handed the baton off to you and, you know, you've had your experiences as an athlete, you've been in the trenches, you know what it likes, what it feels like. And, and then now you're on the announcing side. And so, and then you've had these guys to show how I feel like with, um, with those two, you know, with Phil and Paul that, they were the first two commentators that really created a more emotion than just the bike, you know, for somebody, you know, when you look at the countryside and just their, their gentle conversation with each other, that actually it drew my mum into cycling, right? Like my mum mm-hmm. has her three weeks in France with, with Phil and, and Paul. Well, and that was her big thing. That was always her big thing. And I think that they changed the way, bike races are called do you use that when you call races now that kind of influence and and that conversation with bob now is that the same kind of way that you work yes and no they just went on their own path and they it was pretty (laughs) much a runaway train you know uh, where where they cross streams where you know phil should not be giving his expert opinion in place and that should be paul's job and paul saying something that phil should say and but it always worked with them yeah. And I think it's just the amount of work and camaraderie that they had together that it's unorthodox the way they called races completely, but it definitely always worked for them. Mm. And I don't, so I don't think it's a good thing to emulate anyone who's done. And you don't want to be the guy who takes over for the guy anyways. You know, mm-hmm. it was a very mm-hmm. hard role for Bob Roll to take over for Paul. And I think he's done a fantastic job sitting in the seat with Phil. But no, what they, what they did was completely unorthodox. And I think it was just the work. And the reason that they brought the mums in was because of all the work that Paul did and how he knew, you know, the castles and the, the mountains and the birds and all the different <laughs> things that they, they had knowledge. And the, the birds is mostly Phil. But yeah, they, they definitely brought in the other aspects just because the cinematography in the Tour de France is second to none, as we all know. So, you know, come here for the racing, stay for the cinematography i guess and that's a good way to bring out your moms and the aunts in there yeah and enjoy when you're working the tour de france either in connecticut or when you're actually over in france and you're announcing the races 
Take us through that day, what that actually looks like. You said you're up at three into, into makeup if you're over here. And is it just on all day for 21 days or do you get any respite? So the 3.30 in the morning days are the, are the crazy early days. Um, we have a few that were on air at six o'clock in the morning, I believe. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, that's crazy because that's 3 a.m., Right. Yeah. 6 a.m. Yeah, 6 a.m. So, yeah, we were back. In, it's 3 a.m. People are just getting home from being out on the West Coast. Um, it's really early. And a lot of times it's even before the race has started. And so that makes it a very long day. Then um, just day to day in Stanford is a lot easier, though, I will say. Um, but a little bit more soulless than being on the ground in the Tour de France. In the Tour de France, you're driving from the hotel to the start line, which is usually within 30 minutes to 45 minutes at the very most. Sometimes you could even walk to the to the finish line. Mm-hmm. But then you work 10 hours or so during the day, and then you have to drive anywhere from one hour, if you're lucky, to two or three hours that night. So it's kind of like saying, okay, you live in Tampa, but now you have to drive you know, to Naples tonight. You know, yeah. it, just, it, just, it just keeps on going to the point where you just get used to it. Um, just racing across and you're just happy if you make it to dinner before the sun goes down. So they're just long days and they're long days in, in, uh, Stanford, but they're just a little bit different. It's, you know, you're always fighting against the time because you're on a different clock, obviously six hours behind. And like I said, you're not being able to go on your bike and ride some of the coals and remind yourself of the condition that the racers are going into. Cause you have a, a good idea what they're going through because you've been there, done that. Mm. But at the same time, it's, it's really good to get out there yourself on the bike in the morning or, or open up the curtains and see that it's blown a gale or it's, yeah, yeah. it's, it's raining for example, or it's hot as Hades, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I get it. There's, there's a real endurance component just to being the announcers. I mean, you think of Phil Liggett being 70, eight, I don't know, 78, you know, and and here he goes again for his 50th this year. And, uh, and he keeps as much passion on the first day all the way through. It's absolutely quite extraordinary. Um, there is a documentary out on Phil again. I have to have him back on the show again, but, uh, the voice of cycling, it's a documentary. I think it's coming out in the States here soon. It's already out in Australia, but well worth a watch, but let's move on, mate. I want to rewind the clock and get to know your journey a little bit better because it is, it is fascinating. So I guess the first question is, you know, Tell me about how you found your passion for cycling and, and kind of what age and where were you? Uh, I didn't really have a choice, man. I, um, <laughs> my, my father was a, a two-time Olympian and uh, one of the first Americans to turn professional and, and play his hand in racing six days over in Europe. And then even more famous, though, for being one of the bad guys and breaking away. So he was I was going to ask Sh- you that, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so he's on, on Team Shinzano, and um, that led to some other things that he did some some ads for, from like Schlitz beer, for example. Go for the gusto, go for Schlitz. You know, that really put, puts his timestamp on where we were here. Uh, and Sears and things like that. So he definitely cut his teeth early on, and, and that's really when the sport started to change over to the Americans having a little bit of hope. And then, of course, enters his his roommate, Jim Akwitz, who was the, the general manager of the Sub-11 team, and then Motorola, and then, then later on BMC. So that was his roommate. You know, it was a very strong core in the Midwest back then. So all the guys from Chicago and Madison and Milwaukee, they both speed skated in the wintertime and cycled in the summertime. So that's where the my family that I grew up into. So my dad is my hero. So of course, you know, I, I wanted to be a cyclist. If, if he could do it, then couldn't be that hard. Right. You know, give, <laughs> give, me, give me a little bit of hope to go in forward. And yeah. really, yeah, I, I was always on that path line, you know, from, I even did this in any question the other day, someone asked me this same question was a hindrance or, or helpful to have a, an Olympian, a professional as a father or, or a parent. 
And I think it was very helpful just because it, it gave me uh, the confidence that it was possible, mm. you know, and not to second guess myself. And then of course my parents were amazing. My dad didn't push me into the sport. First of all, like if anything, he tried to, to keep me or shepherd me away from it at times just because he knew how hard it was. And he didn't want himself to be a hindrance since he had success already. So, but yeah, that, that was my journey at, at the beginning. And, you know, I use his high watermarks as where I was within the sport. So if he made the Olympic team at 20, I wanted to try to beat him or equal that at 19 or 20 and <laughs> the year that he made his first national championships, I try to do the same. I don't know if that's healthy or not, but that was, <laughs> that was how I went about my everyday trying to get better in the sport. How has that impacted how you would, you know, you've got two teenage daughters, right? And yeah. <laughs> I guess first and foremost, are they into cycling and, and how does looking at how your dad parented or your mom and dad parented you with, I guess it sounds like they kept the pressure off you um, to perform, which I think almost when parents have been successful, they're actually maybe less likely to put pressure on their kids. Would you agree? Or how has that affected your parenting? At least in my household, you know, with my parents, there there, there was no pressure. Yeah. Um, I will say that when I started doing it, because it is such a burden on the family to be traveling and of course costs, things like that, that it, he didn't want me to waste his time. So he was like, all right, if we're going to do this, when I got a little bit older, we're going to do this. You're yeah. not going to yeah. not do this. So I, not that I needed any pressure on myself or to be held accountable uh, because I was so driven as it was. Um, but to back to your question of my daughters, no, they're not into cycling once in a while. <laughs> They'll ride with me, but it, it, no, they're not into it. And I would say that's, I would say that's almost across the board with most of my friends and yeah. daughters, at least, you know, and you just hope that they'll come around and at some point in time, go for, you know, a nice bike ride in the future. And that my daughter did race or ride the, the Hincapi Grand Fondo uh, last, last two years. And they had a great time doing that. And so Look, I'm, again, I'm not going to push them. They're into ones into ballet right now. Others in swimming, great. and that's great for me. Yeah, no, that's. I think all you want for your kids is that they find something that they can find a passion. Because I, I don't know about you, but I, I'm incredibly grateful to have been able to pursue a passion and have a career in it. And, Big time. And it's that's all you kind of want for your kid. You, you know, your kids, and I. I don't know. That's, that's how I feel with my, my minor. It's so young compared to yours, but you know, if they've found their passion, if it's ballet, if it's swimming, you know, just do it to the best of your ability. Did you do any other sort of sports growing up or was it always, was it just single focused on cycling? No. Yeah. But like I said, my, my dad like didn't even let me race until I was 16 years old, 15 or 16 mm. years old. I played a lot of golf, soccer, uh, even wrestled a little bit, just pretty much, you know, average, Midwesterner, really. I mean, of course it wasn't average just because the people who would come to my house were the people who would eventually be my bosses in professional sport. And those are just my dad's friends. So I always had one eye on cycling and always loved it. And I was the one kid to be watching, you know, getting up early to watch Perry Bay or making sure that I watched the recap every weekend on ABC or whatever Phil Liggett was getting hit to be able to, or ESPN later on. Yeah. Um, so I always had one eye on cycling. Um, but at the same time, just being a regular kid and playing soccer. Yeah. I love that your dad held you out until you were 16 from racing. It was like, he could probably see your passion, but knew that, I don't know, you, you see burnout often, you know, it's a yeah. phrase we use often, especially they push, kids get pushed so hard in those teenage years and um, even, you know, grade school, younger to be Olympic and world champion athletes. And, and then they're all gone by 22. And, and I think your perspective that your dad has that he was, you know, 
he went to a couple of Olympic games and professional athlete. He knows that their burnout's real. Um, I think that, I think that's great. When, when did you sort of realize, okay, I've got some strengths here, you know, like physical, mental, emotional strengths. Was there one moment or did it just sort of grow over time? We had a great group of juniors or guys all under 18 in the Chicago area. And I really thrive on a, in a group setting or a team setting. And so when we started doing that and training together on the weekends, everyone would drive to each other's houses. Some one guy came from Southern Illinois and that's when things started to click with me. And then I had one race in particular, we had a, a velodrome in the North side of Chicago. Cause of, of course we don't have any mountains or any real road races to talk about. So we, we raced on the velodrome mm-hmm. and that's what my dad did. So that, that's what he was going to push me to go into. And I had one race in particular where I did the individual pursuit, which for a junior is 3000 meters. So mm-hmm. 1.8 some miles. And I did one of the best times in the nation without really ever training for it. But, you know, being fit, was just showing natural class out there. And that's when it really clicked that maybe I could do it. And it wasn't myself because I didn't know if that was a really good or bad time. I just knew I won. <laughs> um, but it was more my dad saying, oh, shit, this is real now. <laughs> And, and I guess that was before we were, you know, you got to remember, we're not, you know, having any idea of what FTPs were and functional threshold power and, you know, understand this is just a kid on a bike that just went really fast around a circle many, many times. You know, we're not looking yeah. at VO2 maxes or anything like that. It's just, and it, you know, obviously predates internet. So it would have taken, you know, you'd have to look up all the times from around the country. And I don't know, I, I feel like they would have been like, I think that's good, but let's, Let's look into it. And so with, with that, did you sort of make plans, the next plans? You know, you were 18, you finished high school by then. Was it sort of, go? do I go to college or do I make this a career yeah. move? No, great, great question. I, I was all enrolled to a, a small liberal arts school in Indianapolis called Marion. And mm. they gave scholarships out for cycling. So I was going there and I was getting a nice scholarship. And then I was training also for trying to make the junior worlds team. And right across the street is the velodrome there, the major Taylor velodrome. So I just had to beat out, I think there was three juniors who made the final. So there's a qualification race and then you make the final. Mm-hmm. And so at the final, there was only three of us there and I only had to beat one guy. So two juniors make it to the, <laughs> was going to go make the, so that's, that was the only thing they had to do. And I ended up winning the whole damn race. So we're juniors in the senior race, the senior open pro class oh. and ended up winning the race. Yeah. That's what really set me into overdrive. So then <laughs> of course the coach from Marion comes over and I'll, oh, we'll give you a full ride because he knew exactly what was going on now because now the national team, I, I made the selection now for the Pan Am games because I won that race. I really messed up all the plans for the national team at the time because they had, a, <laughs> this was going into, into 96 in Atlanta oh, wow. and the project 96 that they had in cycling. I got a berating from Chris Carmichael, who was head of USA Cycling at the time. And now this is the best day of my life, right? You got a berating? What? Oh, yeah. Because I messed up their whole plans and they didn't know what to make of this. And some junior, now he's going to be going to the Pan Am Games and all the money that comes to the NGBs and the IOC or the USOC. Um, So I had to perform, right? And so immediately they said, do you want to go to Australia or you're going to go to school? You go, go move into Olympic Training Center and then go to Australia. I said, yeah, of course, yeah, school can wait. I'm out of here. <laughs> and, and, and then I was off to the races. Um, so I went down to Adelaide and did some time at Del Monte, uh, which is the AI. Is that, what is that? Is that part of the AIS? Del Monte? Del Monte um, was like the, it was like the training center. One of the training centers uh, that was in Adelaide. Yeah, that was the cycling training center. That's right. They had the velodrome down in Adelaide. They had the 250 meter track, a very steep, yeah. steep bank. Side, side note to that Adelaide track, we did an indoor triathlon there one year. 
they built the pool on the inside of the track. Really? We had a 10 second towel off that you had to towel off, which no one did. You were exhausted after sprinting, but you, you, you jump out of the pool, towel off, jump on your bikes. And we had normal, normal triathlon bikes, you know, long crank arms. I think we're all in, you know, 175 plus crank arms, never ridden on velodrome. It's about as dangerous as you could imagine. But um, I could imagine. Yeah, dude. How did you even pass anybody? <laughs> it was, it was nuts. And then you'd have to get off and run on the inside of the velodrome, which is that, that painted concrete, you know, that slippery painted oh. concrete when wet. It was just a, it was all made for television stuff, but that was my first, first time on a velodrome. I think it was 90, 94 we were in the adelaide velodrome so exactly where you went and, and yeah, you were, same year you were oh, were you there in 94 yeah same year i think i still have a stain from breaking my collarbone in turn number one like just all my skin coming off no skin suit. Oh, oh yeah. wow so how did you how did that happen how did you break a call how'd you crash we were just doing ungodly uh training there and so above and beyond the thousand kilometers we did mm. up, up in the adelaide hills and the vo2s after those kilometers on the road we do it on the track and then we do friday night racing out there on restricted gears to get our our leg speed up i mean everything that is completely uh, no, no one does anything like that nuts. anymore absolutely person, nuts why, why would you be racing for a four kilometer event why would you be training upwards of you know 35 hours a week you oh, know wow. including the, i mean it's insane right yeah um so it was pretty much just throwing eggs at a wall and whoever didn't break, you're, you're going to make it. But that was the nineties, wasn't it? I mean, I, I've it had, was. I've had Michael Clem on the show. I don't know if you know Michael Clem. He was, uh, in 98, he was a swimmer of the meet at the world championships and he's got numerous gold medals in swimming and one of the best guys you could ever meet. But, and we talk about his swimming miles to swim a hundred meters, hundred meters, he would be doing a hundred kilometers a week in the pool you know, over and over again. And, and that was the mentality we had in triathlon too. It was like just these monster monsters. And we all prided ourselves on that. Work hard, work hard. There was no, I don't know. Things have changed a lot. I think we look at health and wellness a lot more now, but for me, that's what the nineties were about. It's actually funny how close we came to probably meeting each other because I almost joined that cycling group that went down to Adelaide, which was O'Grady, McEwen, McGee. Yeah. There was a whole group. There was a whole, and, and not to say I would have been any of their level, but Australia did this whole thing where they tested us all around the country, reasonable athletes. And I, I was already sort of into triathlon a little bit and that was my passion. And, and then when they ranked my, what events I should be doing, they said, you should be on the, the 4,000 pursuit team in, in Adelaide. And, you know, is that something you'd want to do? I was like, hell no. <laughs> I just wanted to do triathlon. <laughs> but, but it's funny. I think you know, had I gone that way, I think you and I would be sitting here talking, go, oh, wasn't that an interesting time? <laughs> uh, for sure. I mean, then those were, those guys were the animals and that's what, so they had bought the same training program from the Germans. Uh, and then, so we bought the training program that they had bought from the Germans from the Australians. So, so pretty much all doing the same thing again, throwing, throwing eggs at the wall <laughs> and hoping for the best. Mm. And yeah, it was, they had an incredible program. They had won the world championships in 1993 um, then we went on to beat them the, the next year in 94. And so that's why we had that, that motion that I got thrown into the deep end. I think my first year out of juniors, I, I trained, I think almost 95% of the time. And I think I only raced 11 or 12 times the whole year, wow. but I still did like 35, 36,000 kilometers that year, wow. which I, I don't think I ever came close to doing ever again as a professional. It yeah. just made no sense really just riding for the sake of riding. Is there anything you would change if you, if you said, if I said, oh, okay, you could go back and change your junior time. Do you think that was, do you think it was useful to do that then to make you a better athlete later? Or do you think it could have even hurt you later? 
could have hurt me. I, I'm, I wouldn't change anything the way mm. my career went. I think I was very fortunate in many regards, but I, if anything, the guys who made it out of those programs who were lucky enough, who had the engine to get out of that program mm-hmm. alive, mm-hmm. had a PhD in knowing exactly what their body was going to respond mm-hmm. like. And they knew their body so damn well, whether it be, and we were always ahead of people as well for time trial protocol and warm ups and cool downs and things like that, just because we're so disciplined in the endurance track schedules. But of course, now looking at what they do and with the professionals, how hard they train, how, how dynamic everything is there. No one ever rides 240 K just to ride. It just doesn't make any sense to go out there and, mm. and smash your head against the wall for eight hours at a time. These guys are going so much harder, but for a s- shorter duration. And the biggest thing that I look at now is nutrition though. I mean, I don't, I don't want to get too far deep into this, but the biggest one is, is nutrition, you know, whereas what the lack thereof, and especially what we're eating or, or what we weren't eating mm. while exercising on the bike. I mean, now being able to ingest up to 500 calories and you know, 120 grams of carbohydrate per hour. Mm-hmm. I mean, that blows my mind. Whereas it was to your point before is like, Oh yeah, you were, I did a thousand K and I was just drinking water and you know, I had a banana. I'm like, what? <laughs> I mean, that is nothing to be proud of. I know. You know or you, didn't even drink water. We, we were yeah, in, we were in a you squad where you don't drink water. Otherwise you're soft. And it was like, we're, we're home. Excuse me, everybody. But we were home pissing blood. I mean, it, and, and then you're wearing that like a badge of honor, like you were some sort of bravado. And it's like, no, stupid, no, right? Stupid, unhealthy. And we're getting older now. And maybe we're going to see some of those things, you know, show up later here. I hope not. But it's kind of like, you know, what we did to ourselves what wasn't the best. Did you ever feel like, you know, it sounds like you were consumed by cycling. Did you ever feel like you were missing out on anything else in life by being so consumed? Um, yeah, of course. I mean, especially in those early years, especially in the fall and spring, when my friends would be, well, let's say I would be in Europe doing a race in Germany mm-hmm. and I'm spoke, speaking to my girlfriend, which is now my wife now. No way. That's awesome. And talking to, you know, she's just getting home from the bar or going out, you know, and she doesn't want to talk and, and I'm depressed. And that's when you're like, what, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. All my friends are at college and having a great time. And, um, obviously everything works out and it, but it was well at times when, you know, people think that, oh man, you're living the most amazing life. You're getting oh. to see all these places and you are, but you know, you're staying at a, a youth hostel, yeah. <laughs> you're driving in a van across Europe. Yeah. Uh, so no, I, again, I wouldn't change anything, but there was sometimes, I wouldn't say it was too often because we had such a great group together mm. and I love the team dynamic and especially the team pursuit team. We had six great guys. They're always really your ride or die guys at all time. Um, so we were just a band of brothers that, that stuck together. And without them though, yeah, I would have had a much harder time. Yeah. You, you won, you won quite a few national titles in the pursuit, right? I mean, you had a lot of success on the track. Was it a hard thing to leave track or is that just a normal progression? You, you go track and then you join a road team. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's, there's really not a great uh, way to make a living on the track these days. And mm. the same thing was, you know, in 1998, 1997, when I was doing the track still, mm. um, but it, it did help me in that progression because actually, again, it comes up a lot of history in Adelaide for me is that I went and did a world cup in 97 and I went up mm. against Stuart O'Grady and, and Stewie was coming off the, the tour de France and most likely he'd been out, you know, on the piss for the last month, you know, most likely <laughs> now knowing him, but he was my idol. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so I went head to head with him in the final and beat him pretty soundly. And that was 
enough to get the attention of the U.S. Postal's team. And so that's that's how I got my gig racing professionally. And of course, I had some really good road results as well that year. Mm. But without that, without being able to to really show yourself on the world level against someone who's already one of the biggest world beaters and already been world champion and has been successful mm. and big, big races over in Europe. Um, I don't know if I would have got that shot. What, what was it? What was the feeling like when you first got that, that first pro contract? Was it a big deal? Like, did you and your dad celebrate? Was it, or was it just kind of like, okay, this is part of the process? Um, yeah, I, I would say we celebrated. It was, I, you know, it was, it was expect, I, in my mind, you know, it's so foolish. Right. But I always expected that I was going to go turn pro somewhere, you know, that, that was going to be the progression. It was going to be just like my dad and just keep on going with this. Um, but it, there wasn't too much celebrating for a $25,000 contract. You know, that was yeah. like the going rate. <laughs> oh, is that what <laughs> but, it was? Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, but, Thanks but, for you know, mentioning you that. You have to get your watch, you know, and got my tag here, which I still have. You know, mm, <laughs> yeah, was, yeah. But uh, no, it was, it was, uh, it, I felt like it was a, quite of a, a natural progression at the time. Again, right back into the deep end yet again, because you, you make your way to the top in one profession, then you go right back into yeah. the deep end because now you're going to the pros in 98. And it was, that was not easy. Yeah. And that was your first time going to Europe and racing in 98 or had you been no. over there a bit before? Yeah. I've been over there in 96 and 97 as part of the track squad. We did it. Uh, a lot of road races over there just for preparation for the season. Hmm. And I did well in 97, did quite well, won a couple of races over in France, but just, so I already got some looks from some professional teams, but um, thank God I w- didn't take, you know, the, the Dutch squads or the French squads. Um, and I got to go in us postal. Why? Thank God. Just because of language barriers or the way those teams operated. Everything, everything <laughs> put together in one, you know, I, I couldn't imagine, myself surviving a year or two with a French amateur squad and living by myself over there. Yeah. Um, I think I just needed some more time and to be amongst my peers. It was hard enough being on a small American team. Cause you think U S postal, everything, Oh man, world beaters, Lance Armstrong. No, Lance is just coming back from cancer in 97 to 98. So 98 was his first season back after mm. uh, 96. And then we only had 15 guys on the team. So it was a very small team. We didn't have a bus. We barely had a truck. We weren't on the pro tour level. So we had to get invitations to the tour de France. Yeah. It's hard to think of us postal being that small, but it it truly was. I I actually, I haven't done enough homework for this because I always thought of the, you know, the blue machine the you know, so dialed in and everything else. And you guys were doing everything else that the world wasn't doing. Everyone was trying to keep up and, but to hear, you know, 25 grand contracts, you know, no team leader and all just kind of, ah, and when, and was your role when you signed up a domestic to support the others or were you there for specific other reasons? No, I mean, just full-blown domestique, you know, just trying to keep your head above water at all times. I mean, the opposite of what I did the track was true with being a neopro on a a small team. So wherever there was an opening in the schedule, I was being thrown in there, whether you're ready or not. So I think I raced over a hundred times my first year on U.S. Postal, (laughs) including a grand tour. Um, So again, just like throwing... (laughs) <laughs> the eggs at the wall and seeing if you survive, you know, and just learn as much as you possibly can. You know, I, I think I, I did Peru Bay tour Flanders, get Wilbegum, Swiss. I mean, world championships, the Volta Espana. I mean, so many massive races that I had no right participating in, but yeah, I learned a ton. And then next year I was, I was ready to go. Did you get through your first grand tour? What, what was that experience like? Yeah, I did. And I yeah. got better and better as the grand tour went on. So yeah. that started 
making people at least within the team scratch their heads a little bit. And he doesn't, and he doesn't got, stop. He's been doing 36,000 miles when he was yeah. eight, 18 years old. This kid's going to just keep going. Yeah, no. And I think that's, you know, where it did help out with the track program, asking if those kilometers really helped me or not. Yeah. Um, it probably did, you know, it really matured me as an athlete and realizing that I'm not going to die. This is going to be okay. And it really set me up soundly for grand tours, which I didn't know if I'd be a good grand tour rider at the time, because most of the track riders went on to be classics riders or sprinters. Mm. And man, I couldn't sprint myself out of a wet paper bag. Really? Even no, even I suck. Me? I'm horrible. All slow twitch, man. Yeah. But in comparison, I mean, you're comparing yourself to the very, very best in the world too. I, I'm sure if you came down to our little Florida group ride, he'd destroy us all. So I think it's all relative. Greg, I'm slow. Honestly, <laughs> is that I'm right? very slow. Oh man. And, and is that trainable, do you think? Or is that just genetics? I think it's genetics. My dad's slow. My sister's slow. You know, we're, we're all slow on That's the That's right. Your, your sister was awesome. Did she, was she professional for a while? Or I know she raced bikes. I've heard that. but uh, She was one foot in, one foot out. I would say that she yeah. had more class than I did, actually. Um, crazy strong. She mm-hmm. came from, from running and she had some tendonitis in her hips. So she started riding, just doing the same workouts that I was doing that first year when I was saying I was doing all those, all those miles. And, uh, so she started just training on the copy trainer, like just day in, day out and just crushing it. And then she went on, just broke the national record on the, the, the roads up right outside that used to train on in Chicago. Wow. So yeah, no, she, and then we lived right across the hall from each other at the Olympic training center for three or four years. Oh, that's cool. In Colorado Springs. There. You got it. Yeah. And then we went, then she went back to school though. Yeah. Oh, that's great though. I love the, how the, there's such a family dynamic here that I just think is fascinating. I think people see a sport like cycling and they kind of see an individual sport, but then suddenly it's a team and everyone's got their roles. As a domestic, do you have ambitions to be the team leader and, you know, and how does that play out? Is it politics or is it just simply physical? A little bit of both. I mean, I don't know if it'd be necessarily politics unless there's you are a leader with another leader and he happens to be French. We're at a French race and this mm-hmm. is what he wants to do good in. Um, so I don't think politics really ever come into it. It's, it's more of you have to stoke that ego a lot of times and make sure that they are, have the winner's mentality. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times the domestiques, a lot of times do stay there. And I would say that I had a, a very uncommon role, whereas I was a domestique for many years and it did have some big success when I was younger, but I was at the same time that Lance was there and Lance went in Tour de France. And even though I was my first Tour de France, when I was 23, I was in the best young rider Jersey. It doesn't really matter if you have the yellow Jersey, right? So mm. you're still working for them. I remember um, that. I remember that. So the, there's definitely the nurture was all kind of gone and you're just there as, as a pawn yeah. trying to make sure that Lance is okay. And that makes sense, right? Of totally. course. And of I, course. It, it, that's just business. Yeah. Um, but, but then it wasn't until later on and then you get in that mentality that, you know, I'm happy doing my role and I'm one of the best in the business at protecting my leader and it's a high mountain and I'm reliable. Mm-hmm. I had to be pushed to be the leader. Let's just put it that way. Mm-hmm. I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was a born leader. I, I had so much compassion for the people working because I had done that so much, but I think it may be maybe an even more fair leader, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. because I, I did appreciate how hard it was to sacrifice yourself and go back to get bottles when you don't have the legs to go back to get bottles and know that you're going to get dropped right after that or get on the front when you don't want to get 
you know, so those kind of things, I think, made me a very balanced rider uh, later on when I was in the leadership role. Leading from the back or leading, you know, that's what we talk about leadership these days in companies. It's not always this top down approach. It's actually the great leaders of the world are picking up and doing the things that nobody else wants to do. You know, so you, without it, you know, you were domestic, but in that role, you were a leader, a leader within the team for that role that mm. without having you, the team would have not been good. i got a question here and, and you can either choose to answer or not answer it, but with or without drugs, was Lance still the best bike rider in those tours? I mean, that's going to be the question that's going to go on for- I know, I know, but you were in it. You were in it and you were surrounded by it all. You've experienced it all. You know, I don't want to dive too much into this because I know it's been done a million times, but I'm just curious because of your, I don't think there's many people that could answer that with the knowledge that you have. And so I'd be wrong of me not to ask at least. Yes, I I think that, you know, given with with or without at the time, for sure, just because of his mentality. And he was so far ahead of preparing meticulously for everything that now that everyone does the same thing that lasted, no one was going and doing the recons of Mm. all the stages at the time. Mm. No one was weighing their food. No one was getting their bike down a couple of grams here and there. He was so meticulous in the preparation going into things that that was the first of the marginal gains. And I don't think he gets enough or the team gets enough credit for what they did back then. Mm-hmm. As far as that goes, of course he was the best at everything. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that, that helps as well. But yeah, no, he was, he was the first guy, especially for grand tours and especially specializing just in one race. Yeah. He really did just focus on saying that's the biggest race in the world. That's not, all that matters. Yeah, right? That's all that matters. Yep. If, if you're an Indy car driver, you need to win Indy. Yeah. Yep. I mean, it's awesome to win, long beach grand prix but no one really remembers that and no no one even really knows that um but yeah it's indy or nothing it's tour de france or nothing and um the fact that lance won seven in a row i mean to to finish seven tour de france's in a row is Mm. is huge Mm -hmm. let alone win the races and not you know find yourself with a broken bone or sickness things like that so yeah it was uh he was remarkable he really was and i think that was mostly his mind and how strong that is more than his body. Did you have a great brotherhood within that team? You know, when you think of Hincapi and, and yourself and, and Lance and and for me, it was just the golden era. I just loved it, right? I never missed a July. I just, it, it's just such an incredible time. And and I know there's some negative to, towards it all. And I'm, I know I might get some backlash, but for me, it was still just an entertaining time that it really, for people that maybe weren't into cycling, you guys brought cycling to the rest of the world outside of Europe, you know, to us Australians and Americans. I think it was, there's like a brotherhood there. Were you, did you guys get along? Were you guys close? Was there that kind of thing? Yeah. They were, everyone was close until they weren't right. So yeah, like we've, right. they got a little bit too big for the britches and they decided they wanted, which is only fair, right? If you, you realize, Hey, I'm pretty sure I could do amazing by myself. I'm going to go somewhere else. And then, then you were out. I mean, you were out, yeah. um, with, especially with Lance. So like it, Tyler Hamilton yeah. left and he went to Phonak out. Kevin Livingston went to t- telecom out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the, that, that was kind of how so it was good until it wasn't. Yeah. Uh, but I will say 99, that first year uh, that Lance won was very special with the, the riders that we had all the team. Cause I mean, you talk about, again, we were one year removed from the, the year that we had 15 riders on the team. We were a little bit stronger, but still we weren't that much stronger as a team. And we, we had two little campers. I mean, 
I'm talking campers, you know, like on the <laughs> shitty chassis. We call them like chitty, chitty, bang, bang. We're just out there like <laughs> making the, so we had t- half the team. We didn't have enough room. So Jonathan Vauders had to go in the car. And this is still the time when we had nine riders on the team. So we had the three guys in the front front camper and then the rest of us all in the back. I mean, I'm talking about, I didn't, there wasn't even a seat for me. I just laid on the ground, listened to my, my disc man. <laughs> <Your> disc man. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And, and you still pulled off one of the most incredible years. Right? Uh, that's pretty special. I saw you answered a question on any question about, you know, what was your best grand tour? And you said it was the 08 tour de France. Mm-hmm. So I just want you to sort of maybe just tell me why it was your best and and um, and, and kind of why did it all come together? You think in oh wait, what, how did the body, the mind, all of that turn up for that one spectacular Grand Tour that you had? I mean, you had many. I, I mean, but let's yeah, talk no, about no, that for one. sure. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I took a massive leap of faith with a, a few friends of mine, um, and I left CSC, which was the dominant team at the time, to go to the startup team slipstream sports which is now ef education and then at the time we became garmin and we were really just a a hodgepodge of a team a lot of eclectic personalities but we were very staunch anti-doping right Mm -hmm. and so no needles policy we're the first ones to implement that and then we had our own anti-doping within on top of USADA and of course uh, the uci as well so we we were pin cushions we got tested so many times but it was really (laughs) just the start of really taking the marginal gains to a next level. And we had, we're going to say, okay, we're going to give these guys everything that we could possibly give them to make sure that they're still competitive without even having to worry about any kind of doping whatsoever, not worry about it. What everyone else is doing, just focus on themselves. Mm. And this is the first time that was thrust into a leadership role. And again, we were a wildcard team. We got into the, the tour de France on a wildcard basis. And that was after we won the team time trial in the Giro d'Italia. And I got the pink jersey there. Mm, and that's mm. where I started to believe in myself. And I lost the jersey after stage two. It was a margin of like half a second. So I fought for that for seven days. And I realized that I'm, I'm competitive. I'm still kind of overweight. And so I went to a training camp right after the Giro. Went straight, didn't go home. Went straight up to the mountains. Sat up the top of San Moritz mm-hmm. and trained my butt off. And really just became mature as an athlete you know that's right right after we had our first daughter uh, uh, my wife called me and said that she's pregnant with number two while i was up at training camp and that definitely gave me pause as well and i was like thinking like all right i don't have many more years left i need to make these count i'm 30 some years old i'm just can't be as flippant as i've been in the past i really needed to put everything into it and that's really where i i turned into the leader on the team and ended up fourth place and but the team wasn't strong, Greg. It, it was, you know, I wouldn't see my teammates for hours sometimes in the high mountains. I was getting water bottles from, from other team cars whenever they'd be nice enough to give me one. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a, it was a really a, an amazing experience. A little bit of uh, David Goliath for myself. And I almost had too much respect from the other riders around me where I didn't attack them just because I was, I felt like, oh, I was, well, I'm, I'm with the biggest in the world now, but not thinking of myself as one of them yet. And it took a while for me to get that mentality. And it was almost too late by the time I actually got it. Mm, there's a real mindset shift there, isn't it? Of that confidence. And, uh, and like you said earlier, you have the born leaders, you have the people that are born with tremendous confidence and self-belief. And I, like you, felt much the same. You know, it took me a long time. I think, I think we were similar. Right? I think I was around 30, 31, 32, where I started to go, oh, maybe I do belong. And then it was probably like another few years after that, that I'm like, oh, no, I can actually do do reasonably well in this sport. And I think 
I don't, I didn't have kids at the time, but I can imagine the empowerment that you felt that, okay, clipping the pedals over right now is really a necessity. I'm not just doing it for me. I'm doing it for a family. I've got to provide all of a sudden your perspective changes a little bit, you know, Mm. and, and were you able to then carry that on from that? Oh, wait, did you feel that energy just keep growing? For sure. Especially into the next year. Um, and then you know, that's when Lance made his comeback as well. Mm-hmm. And and that was great to be pushed so hard and just, you know, that's when the, the birth of social media and Twitter and things like that started getting bigger and bigger. So you could really watch and see what people are doing for training. And so that pushed me to push myself really hard. And I was absolutely flying that next year, probably better than I was in 08. But wow. then I had a horrific crash on the third stage of the Giro that year. And broke five vertebrae in my hip and my a rib and then somehow still came back and got seventh place. So that was kind of like the the fish that got away that yeah, year. Um, yeah. We still had a blast and still did great. And uh, honestly, in hindsight, that actually was probably the biggest result somehow because I had no coming back every day. I got a little bit better during the France because I, I came in so undercooked because I was still recovering from mm. all the, the broken bones that I had. And that not to mention, I didn't even ride my bike really all of May. So that, that was a big one that got away, but that gave birth to Bradley Wiggins. You know, Bradley was on our team that year and he got fourth place. So helping him out and that took a lot of pressure off my shoulders as well. So having two of us in the top 10 that year was huge for such a small team and coming close to winning the team time trial. And, uh, yeah, that, that was, that was a a crazy year, but it took me to be honest with you after that, I bet you it took me a year and a half to recover from the damage that I did to my body. Yeah. You push through every kind of fatigue and broken bones that you had to try and get through that. Do you, do you look at 08 uh, and look at these two tours are, are really quite exceptional. Do you ever look back and go, Oh, what if, like, what if I had a bigger, stronger team around me or, or, or you kind of go, okay, that was it. It's time to move on. You know, once, I mean, it's, it's only fair once in a while you do it, you know, yeah, it's, it's yeah. only natural. And then you're like, no, shut the fuck. I mean, what's <laughs> you, know, you, 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 you did a, you had a great time. You, you did, the stories that you have are, yeah. are second to none. So no, I, I wouldn't, again, erase it once in a while. Of course, of course, you know, especially what we were talking about earlier with what these younger generation has right now. And it's just different though. They don't have the same camaraderie. They're a little bit more robotic in their training. Everything's so disciplined down to the minute gram of what they're putting in their bottles for training. Um, It's just a different, it's completely different. And it didn't take long to really accelerate into where we are now. It's interesting, you know, because I was always one that was, I I appreciated sports science, but I, I loved what I did. And I was always worried if I'm measuring my sleep or if I'm measuring my calories or if I'm measuring... I don't want to lose my passion and my joy for what I did. I was driven by passion, you know, and I was always like, ah, I don't know. But I think, I think what they're doing now, and maybe you can agree or disagree. I think, I think they are bringing on the sports science and really dotting every I and crossing every T, but I think they've found a pretty good balance. At least the ones at the top have, I don't know. Your perspective is probably better than mine. It's hard to say. I, I, I'm in the mindset of if you have a world beater, who's already has that pressure of a leader at 21, 22, like Taddy Pagacci, who's already oh. won two, two to France's and he's 23 years old. Unbelievable. I want to talk to you more about him, but go on. <laughs> I, I just, and, and just using him as an example and many others, cause he's not the only one. There's many young riders now. So the, the mentality and the knowledge that they already have at 18, 19 years old as a junior it's the same that took me 10 years to gather as a professional just because there wasn't that kind of information out there. Yeah. Yeah. I I feel, I mean, I hope that they have long careers. I I was very blessed to race for 16 years professionally, but 
I don't know if they're going to have the length of careers. Uh, if you're, if you're hitting it so hard from day one, when you're 20 years old and turning professional and you're racing like that and living like a monk, I, I just can't see that happen. It's going to take a very specific mindset to be over a decade of yeah. a career. Well, and also there's that achievement mindset. You've already, when you've ticked all the boxes, yeah. where does the motivation come from to keep what, what other boxes are there to tick, you know? And if you're 23 and you've won the Tour de France twice and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, okay, maybe you can go on and match all the other Tour de France winners. But then, you know, that's only five years from now, you know, three to five years, depending on the math. But it's kind of, I don't know. <laughs> it's like you said, I think in our generations, it was, you would spend your time doing your, you know, learning your craft and your trade and build into your careers. And it'll be an interest. I agree. It'd be interesting to see, you know, how they go. I, I asked you, um, well, you, you said on any questions sort of, you know, what was your best event? You also said your worst grand tour was 05 Giro d'Italia. <laughs> Can you expand on that? Why, why was that one so bad in 05? Oh man. Well, in the middle of my career, I had a lot of injuries, um, mostly compensation injuries, um, since I, I broke a lot of things on my left-hand side, mm. a lot of collarbones in my arm. And I always was hurrying up to get back into shape as fast as I can and get back into racing just to show my worth to the team and to myself, really. Talk about hindsight, the things I shouldn't have done. That's number one. <laughs> take your time. Everyone out there listening, take your time getting back in after injury or sickness. There's You're not, not going to really save the world. You're not going to help anyone. You're going to hurt anyone, everyone but yourself. So anyways, coming back too quickly, I put myself into a horrible predicament with my back and hips. And so I had zero form coming to the Giro Italia and we were working for Ivan Basso mm -hmm. and Basso got into the pink Jersey and we were racing really good together. It was a great camaraderie. And then everything went sideways and even Ivan got sick, ended up on the side of the road, you know, doing number two, many times, not to get too graphic. <laughs> uh, but so the, the biggest stages, you know, this, this is over the course of a big weekend and everything was for not. And then just the morale of the entire team was horrible. And it was just the day to day, day to day was just absolutely brutal and absolutely no fun. I mean, every grand tour is hard, no matter if you're doing well or you're not doing well, but when you have, you're just going from point A to point B and just being pack fodder, there's no worse place you could pack possibly fodder. be than in the, in a big grand tour. <laughs> pack fodder. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Cause it's like, you just start asking yourself why, why am I here? You know, what's the point? And, and yeah. Like what are, what are you serving you? I'm not yeah. making, I'm not doing anything great for my sponsor. I'm yeah. just, I'm just physically here. Yeah. You know, I'm just taking up space, you know? So it's, I, I hated that being in that position. Yeah. Um, it happened again later in the Giro. Um, I would say the Giro d'Italia gives you so much and takes so much. It's just such a brutal race up in the Dolomites. It could snow so often mm -hmm. crashes are always there. And then my last grand tour there in, in 2013 was horrific as well. Same thing happened. Ryder Hedgedale. We won the race outright in 2012. I remember that. Yep. Everything went wrong the next year, and we, but we still had to finish and just going from point A to point B, just brutal. Absolutely brutal. <laughs> and you got to keep up. It's not like you're going for a leisurely ride either. No, it's, like it's horrible. <laughs> Did you have any... And, and I've got this last question before I sort of want to talk about your transition to commentary, but did you have any embarrassing moments or anything you kind of look back and go, Oh, always oh, plenty. Of course. <laughs> if, you, if you race, if you race that long, I mean, I think the, one of the worst ones that sticks out and it's, it's silly. It doesn't make, I mean, it's some, everyone's done it. Um, but I remember standing with Oscar Freer, who was the world champion mm -hmm. at the time we started in, 
I think Amsel gold or one of the races, it was a big classic and getting stuck in my cleat and just falling over <laughs> at the start line, pretty much on top of him. And, and Oscar's like, if, if you ever, if you ever get the chance to meet Oscar, he's probably the coolest cat of all time yeah. in cycling. Just yeah. this, nothing flustered him. Like he's always just, just cool, man. Like a blues singer, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. And he's just looking at me like, well, what is the matter with you? Just relax. It's a, yeah, that was, that was not a, a fun time. Oh, I love it. And it's all caught on television. We can go look it up. I'm sure. <laughs> A quick mini break just to remind you to go check out any question which you can find on ios and android or you can use anyquestion.com forward slash christian vdv that's anyquestion.com forward slash christian vdv I'm always fascinated about, you know, athletes like yourself that have had such remarkable careers and, and long and sustained careers like you did have. And and I'm just fascinated about what that transition was like when, you you know, I guess first the first question is, why did you decide to retire? And then, you know, what was that like? I think it was mostly just my kids getting a little bit older. Mm-hmm. Um, I was starting to get older uh, and it was just the game it was just getting harder and harder for me to be jumping across from from continent to continent and really just seeing my life and all my friends, you know, growing up and I felt a little despondent, but it was mostly all the sacrifice of my family mm-hmm. that they were having to do. And it was just getting old, you know, and I, I didn't have the, the form anymore. So it was, the writing was on the wall and I was, I was happy to do it, but I'm so fortunate to be able to say that I got to pick the time yeah. that I got out of the sport. Mm-hmm. And I think that any athlete who says that, um, they are fortunate to be able to, to pick their time because it doesn't happen too often, does it? I couldn't agree more. I couldn't, no. you know, if you get to pick because not because of injury or illness or anything, you get to say, okay, uh, my passions run out or whatever it is, you get to choose it. Were, were, you, were you still available to sign reasonable contracts? Because I'm assuming you were making more than 25 grand a year <laughs> <laughs> throughout your career and the contracts yeah. had grown a fair bit. Was that hard to walk away from? No. It, no. it was not hard at all. Yeah. Um, I didn't even look for a contract. I, I, I yeah. told, I think I even the year before I had won a big race in us pro championships. Right. I told my director, I said, hey, I'm going to win the time trial tomorrow and win the race overall. And I'm going to, I'm going to drop the mic and retire. And he's like, Oh no, please don't. And that's the reason why I even raced the next year. I did not even think twice about retiring. It wasn't even a hesitation. Mm-hmm. And I think my wife was just so darn happy that uh-huh. I retired too. kids as well. And there's only so many times you want to see dad coming home in bandages and oh, messed yeah. up. And especially with, with never coming home with the flowers anymore either. That gets old. As yeah, well. no, it does. And, and I think it, it also is like, when you've ticked all the boxes, like I said earlier, and, and well, many of the boxes, there's always stuff you wanted to have done, but you get to the point of going, okay, now I'm being, you know, I'm, I'm part of the fodder. And it, I mean, you weren't actually, you did, you did sort of retire still at the high time, but you do start to, I felt like I was on my way out and it's like, okay, that's probably good. You've had your turn. My wife used to say to me, Greg, you've had your turn. I was like, okay, were were there opportunities for you as soon as you retired or had you been planning or, you know, putting in seeds in the ground to try and have those opportunities? I would say the best thing that happened to me is I crashed out of the Tour de France, which is obviously horrible, um, especially your last Tour de France. And our media liaison, Mariah Palmgrace, now Mariah Ketchell, uh, asked me if I would like to go and do a segment for NBC. But by this point in time, I were already back in Chicago, back to where, where right. my family is. And I was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to fly back. So I just bought a ticket 
I went back there, much to the chagrin of my fa- my team. Obviously, I should have been home re- recovering and getting ready for the last couple of races as I was reigning champion of US Pro. Mm-hmm. But you know, I saw the right on the wall that hey, I need to start making some opportunities for myself in the future. So I went there and mm-hmm. did a couple of segments, and they were in between talent for a while, and so going back there really gave me a shot of being able to get a job and get my foot in the door at NBC. So that was probably the best thing I ever did mm. be able to walk into the job right away. That's awesome. And, and you were you exceptional right away? No, <laughs> not even close. <laughs> you tell not me, tell me close. what that was like, you know, what was that sort of first time experiences and, and, and everything oh, else? Gosh. My first experience I really remember is sitting in between. So we, we had this horrible little, it was a trailer for the tour of California, super small, super hot. And it was a card table. And so you could barely get three people wide. Right. <laughs> and it was Phil Liggett on my right-hand side and Paul Sher on my left-hand side and myself in the middle to get a word. in, first <laughs> of all, is almost impossible. And then when you do get a word, they only get two seconds. So you're trying to say as much as you possibly can and tripping all over your tongue. And then on top of that, the comms were coming down all the time because we had a, they tried to save some money at the tour of California that year. So they had a not so good service who was doing the, the helicopter and the fixed plane was run out of gas. And so they weren't getting pictures. It was just a horrific time where I was great. I was almost physically sick a lot of times, like just sitting there like, and I, I hated every minute of it, but at the same time uh, afterwards, I got to go hang with those knuckleheads and had an absolute blast going to dinner yeah. um, with those guys. And, and then it was the tour de France. And then I started enjoying that a lot more. Yeah. And I think once you find your place and it's, it's kind of like you, you've taken yourself out of your comfort zone, you know, you, yeah. you get comfortable riding a bike and now you've got to go put yourself somewhere. Yeah. You know what bike racing is about, but you've never had to call it before. And people, yeah. ex- the expectation is, well, he should be great. And you're like, well, hang on. I've got a, it took me a long time to become a great cyclist. And it's probably going to take me a little while to become a great announcer and commentator. You know, it, it is. And, and the reason they hire you is because they want to hear from you. They don't want to hear you try to be a broadcaster. They want to be you in yourself. And mm. it, it's funny to say that, but it's so hard to be yourself when there's no one looking at you. There's just a red light yeah. staring you in the eye. And so, you know, I was found myself sounding like the other broadcast. I sound like Bob Rowe. It sounded like I would start saying things that Phil would say, just because I thought that's what you're supposed to say. And then it took me years to really realize, just be yourself. And then yeah. when I was by myself, started to be myself, then that's when I started to be comfortable and have a good time, uh, not get so nervous. And then of course it was really Paul Burmeister, who was a massive help for me. He's, he hosts our desk for the last at four, four or five years now. Mm-hmm. And he's helped me a lot just because he's professional at it. He's really with his craft and just slowing everything down. And instead of trying to say five, seven different things, as we could see naturally, just bring it down to one or two because people can't ingest that much information anyways. It's so just funny, break, yeah. just chill out, man. And yeah. Just say and focus on one or two great things and go with that. So you, you've done a lot now. I mean, you're nine years in. How many events are you doing a year? I mean, obviously COVID years were a bit different, but in terms of, you know, you've got the Tour de France, you're doing the other Grand Tours or the, the one-off day, you know, the one-day stage races. What other events are you doing? Do you have a full uh, calendar? Or? I'm doing Paris-Nice currently, so that's eight days in yep. a row, and the Tour de France is 21. A little bit of Dauphiné, the Vuelta España later in the fall. We don't do the Giro d'Italia. So right around... 
50 to 60 days a year, I would say on average. Nice. Um, so uh, enough to stay in there. Yeah. Um, the biggest one is that we don't do this. Some of the smaller classics it's because we have a contract with a Amory sports organization. So that's ASO that runs a tour de France for the longest time. Right. And so we do everything that they, they host. Gotcha. Um, so that, that's, that's been our longstanding contract, but we're coming up for contracts soon. So hopefully NBC re-ups with that. Yeah. Are there events that you'd love to, like, have you, have you commentated the Olympics yet? Is that yeah. something you've been, yeah, yeah. Two times actually. Okay. I, was, I was fortunate enough to do 2016 and then I did this year. That's right. You mentioned um, that. I'm sorry. Yeah. We, we, yeah. Paul, and yeah. Paul, Paul Sherman and I were lucky enough to be on boots on the ground in Rio. And that was really cool to yeah. have that experience to be over there. And, uh, unfortunately now, I, you know, I don't think many people are going to be able to say that they're at the Olympics going forward. I think this is here to stay for how much money that the network oh, saved by, yep. by keeping it and the technology is there. So it doesn't really matter because th- nothing really changes. You're looking at the same screen, you're seeing the same images, uh-huh. you're commenting on the same thing. It's just that you don't have that physical feeling and you don't get to t- speak to the athletes as much. Mm-hmm. And of course, when you're calling a race, that's two o'clock in the morning. That's really hard to get up for sometimes. Oh, it is. <laughs> it's it's getting you excited. You got as much coffee in your system as well, but you'd just rather be in bed, wouldn't you? And you're like, oh, I gave up on doing that. I don't know if you had many. In triathlon, we had a lot of early morning events, um, not the European ones so much, but we had a lot of 6 a.m. starts. And so you got, you know, and one of the things that just took me out of the sport is like, I'm just over having to set the alarm for 2.33 a.m., and, and get up. And then all of a sudden you do an announcing gig where you have to set the alarm up there. And you're like, ah, oh, I didn't want to do this anymore. This is why I retired. I didn't want to have to get up and do that anymore. So brutal, but I'm looking forward to, I have watched you over the last 10 years, I should say, you know, just grow and become more and more comfortable, you know, because it's not easy. It's I, actually, here you go. Is it, do you find yourself getting more nervous for the announcing or when you're about the gun goes off and you're, and you're actually cycling a Tour de France. Mm, about the same, honestly. Mm, um, they're both performances. Same t- <laughs> yeah, they're both. Ref- they, they truly are. Yeah. You know, and you, you just. But I would say it's the same same mentality, though. The the more prepared you are for anything, whether it be a big race or coming live on air, is takes your nervousness completely out of the equation, mm-hmm. and it makes you so much more confident that you know that you're prepared. There's nothing else you could do. Mm. <laughs> that red light's going to go on, whether you know it or not. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to say something. So it's it's coming at you right did, now. Did Let's Phil Liggett ever tell you his first time announcing? Have you heard oh, that yeah. story with him when when they the, the production guy, he was so busy watching the race that he was forgot that he was meant to talk. And then he had the <laughs> production guy yelling, and he said, Phil, say something. <laughs> so we've, so- all, we've all had to start somewhere. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. All right, mate. So a couple of questions just to finish off. I, I, I More about cycling as a whole. You know, what, what do you think's been sort of the biggest changes in cycling history? One-off things that you think have impacted the sport more than anything else? The internet. The internet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, honestly. I mean, I think the technology that it, we've seen over the last 10 years or so has been incredible. Being able to coach a rider, you know, who's thousands of miles away yeah. and it doesn't mean any. I mean, you could see, and this has been for a while, but now we have on all the implementation everywhere from super sapien seeing your constant blood glucose mm-hmm. a wearable like that to your power meter that came out in the mid nineties, but really making more sense of that on your bike, mm-hmm. uh, heart monitors, of course, that came out even earlier, but now putting all that together. And then of course, nutrition on top of that. So the amount of information, like I said earlier with the average teenager now, 
is just incredible. And it's just so paying that it took you so much time to gather that information as a professional in the past, you're, you already have that in your hand on day one. You don't even have to think about it. Everyone on the, at least on the big teams, they're just like, just do this. And this is going to be your outcome. It's a simple math equation. Here you go. And of course your mind comes into it a lot, but if you have the mentality and you're a go-getter, everything's going to come out okay for you now. So now where you're seeing the, the true talent come out, it's fantastic to watch. So the sport is great, but really seeing some, a kid who there's been a, a few occasions where Jonathan Narvez, for example, from Ecuador, mm-hmm. you can't find him on the GPS. That's where he lives in Ecuador. It's like, he doesn't even have a real road that he rides on to get to the big roads. They can finally see him on the GPS. It's a dirt road, <laughs> but the amount of training and what he could do at altitude is incredible and second to none. So having raw talent like this and being able to foster that no matter where they live in the world and be able to see the true talent come into the sport. I think we're living in a a great age right now and seeing where it became so uh, really just lame for a while where we're just kind of running to the train and seeing who could hang on the wheel for as long as possible. Now we're seeing long range attacks yet again, just like it was 30, 40 years ago. So I, I love what's what's happening within the sport. I think it's raw. I think it's fun to watch. At the level is higher than ever. It's terrifying to me as a spectator, and I couldn't imagine as a parent now to watch this and see the horrible crashes. Mm. Um, but as a fan, I'm just again very happy to be still uh, working within the sport. I feel like it's not work. It's it's kind of like my my grandfather was a pilot for TWA, and he said I never worked a day in my life. Yeah. I just went on air, airplane rides, and I feel fortunate to be able to call races in cycling. Oh, what a great answer, mate! I appreciate that. That's really great insights as well. Who who do you think was the greatest cyclist you ever competed against? Like you were up against continually. Wow. Uh, I mean, of course, we already talked about Lance. He was he was incredible to, to ride with. Um, there's so many, honestly. I know. I mean, you can, and, you can uh, say you know, pass, but <laughs> yeah, you know, there's there's riders though that I would say that the guys who didn't make it and maybe didn't have the mentality yeah. had the most physical. Uh, there's one of the Lithuanian rider in particular. I remember riding with incredible the things that he could do on the bicycle. Um, but I got I got the chance to work with so many great riders over the, over the years, um, whether it be Alberto Contador, Ivan Basso, mm. Lance Armstrong, and then the teammates that I had to share with, you know. It, it really was. I, I got to be very fortunate to the teams that I used. I got to ride with. Yeah, that's pretty cool. How does um, being an Aussie? How did Cadell Evans match up when you know his win of the Tour de France? When what year was that? It was a uh, two thousand eleven. It was eleven. How how yeah. how was his sort of performance? Was he one of those guys that you were kind of like? Was that a breakthrough or was it an expectation that you think? Yeah, that that was right. He had been. He'd been right around there for so long at that yeah. point in time that yeah. it, it was just a matter of time and just everything had to work out right. And that year in particular that Cadell did win, we had the yellow jersey and within our team with Tor Hoosfeld. So we won the team time trial and it was a perfect place for him to be. He was one second behind in second place. So he didn't have to do the, the yeah. protocol yeah. of going to the, the ceremony every day and getting the yellow jersey and signing autographs and then, of course, go to the media scrum after that and then do anti-doping, which takes 35 to 45 minutes where Cadell's already back and get a massage by the time Tor has even left. So those days, eight days, I believe, in a row, and then another rider took the yellow jersey. Cadell only really had it towards the end. So it was very everything lined up perfectly. And then of course he's, he backed it up by winning the world championships as well. Yeah. And then you can't forget about Cadell 
when you think about him as being the, a mountain bike rider yeah, as course. well yeah. and where he came from. So, you know, Cadell's, Cadell's fun. I've, I've had the opportunity to go in and ride some Grand Fondos here in Greenville and in New York over the years. And it's, it's always fun to reconnect, That's especially fantastic. in hindsight. If you were to say who's, is there one cyclist, the greatest of all time? And that's always Eddie Merckx, but I, I have a feeling that we're looking at the greatest cyclist of all time right now in, in Teddy Pogaccia. Mm, I mean, mm. what he's been doing as of late um, and how much fun he seems to be having while doing so. Yeah. And you, you brought up like, you know, what, what gets these guys up in the morning after you've already done it so many times, if you'll won all these races. And I think he's truly having a good time. Yeah. And I just hope that we continue to see him having a good time or it doesn't get too much of a job. And yeah. then I think that's where it'll be the demise of Teddy. But as long as he's having a good time and he has this kind of talent, and he has support around him and he's not taking it too serious. Like, it's, it's so much fun to see him attacking in the yellow Jersey when he doesn't need to, and just going for the kills and winning a race like he did last Saturday in Strada Bianchi and the gravel. <laughs> I mean, unbelievable. I mean, he went with 31 miles to go and made everyone look like fools. I mean, these things just don't happen anymore. He's and a, when Eddie Merckx was racing, it was the seventies. Yeah. It was a completely different dynamic, yeah. but yeah, Eddie always has to be the best of all time. I mean, he's, he's the goat, but, yeah. uh, I think we could be looking at, at the, maybe the, that's the a big call. Coming. I love that. I love that. So we're going to, we're going to use that. I mean, it, it really is fair enough. I mean, he's the only one to have ever won the young rider and the mountain, um, Jersey and the overall, once, but he's done it yeah. twice. Nobody's ever done that. Not Eddie Merckx. Nobody has done that. He's a greedy little fence. bugger, isn't he? He is he greedy because you think he about wants that. all the money. Well, what about all the other young guys that wanted maybe a little <laughs> white jersey or you know those polka dots? Yeah, selfish, selfish. If you're listening, selfish. <laughs> all right, mate. A couple of big questions just to finish up. All right, what three people, not family, would you invite to a special dinner and why? Man, this is not easy, especially you, you put in there, they have to be living as well. I think it makes it a lot easier when they're, they're, they're well, past. Well, if it's but... easier for you, we can add. No, no that's all right. I, I'll okay. go we'll go okay. So this is, pretty, I mean, this is all over the shop, but um, I love it. I think Adele would be so much fun to hang out with. Very cool. She is hysterical. I mean, every time I see anything with her, she always makes me laugh. Um, obviously, if she sings a song to us, that would make it even better. <laughs> can serenade us. That would be lovely. <laughs> and then on the complete other side of the spectrum, uh, I think I'd have to throw in Jay-Z. Just as here's what he's done throughout his life and how he's come up and now being one of the first guys with a big B at, in a lot of zeros in his, his bank account yeah. and what he's become. Yeah. Uh, I think he has to have a fantastic story time and he could bring the wine he's a big wine guy oh, so. and yeah and he can afford some decent stuff too so. exactly <laughs> I, I want you to be bringing that drc um and then this is a, another just big personality um guy i admire is, is the rock Dwayne the rock yeah, johnson I, yeah. I think i think he'd be fantastic in his work worth ethic and people i know who have worked with him in, in the movie business say that they can't say anything wrong about him so I think that's my three right there. I love I mean, it. I love, what I a mean, great it, three. It's endless game, right? You can do oh, no. so many different people, but. Yeah, no, it's one of, I, I enjoy that question. Sometimes I throw out, who do you think are the greatest athletes of any sport all time? And that one can go on forever as well, because there's no real right or answer, right mm -hmm. or wrong. And um, But I have the rock in my three, actually. I have, uh, I have the rock, the queen of England, Queen Elizabeth. I just, oh. after watching The Crown, especially, I'm a huge fan. Um, and then who do I have? I think I had Warren Buffett or somebody like that. But then I've, I'm up in the air about that one. And, uh, but it, it, is a, it is a hard hard question. All right, the next one for you. You've already given so much advice. There, there's, there's more? 
<laughs> What's one piece of advice you would give someone to help them just optimize their own life? Oh, I'm trying to optimize my own life, man. I'm a mess. <laughs> I'm just trying. I'm just trying to hang out with your life, dude. Don't come to me for advice, people. <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, I don't know, mate. You, I think it's when you look at you and all you've achieved. I think there's a lot of learning there. So, come on. I've always done well, Greg, when I'm busy, and I've really trying to put myself outside of my comfort zone. Mm. I thrive in those kind of situations. It's terrifying at times, of course, and it gives me uh, a little anxiety at times, but that has really been my entire life. If I look back and especially, and this has been like therapy talking to you, but talking about what I've done over my life. So I, it's, it's funny, your perspective of what you you currently are and what you've done never <laughs> It does change when you actually say it to another person, but I would say, yes, for me, it's always putting myself outside my comfort zone, learning from those things, um, learning from your mistakes and just putting one foot in front of the other. I love that. Taking yourself out of the comfort zone. That's when you're truly living, isn't it? I mean, it's otherwise, what are you doing? And, and I, I think, I, I think that's, that's great advice. So I think, mate, this has been really fun by the way. Agreed. And like I said earlier in the show, we kind of tread similar paths in, in terms of our timeline of doing things. Um, but you know, watching your career and everything and now being able to call you a mate and everything it's been it's been really a joy mate so really appreciate it what, what's next for you you've got you've got this call that you're doing now paris nice you got a little break then it's tour de france yeah i have in between that i have um biggest one i'm looking forward to is where some of my old buddies and i were going to go over to the tour of flanders in belgium at the end of the month so i'm looking really Oh, that's my favorite race. There's no doubt about that. It. Okay, right? I, yeah. I am biased as I am Belgian. Um, I did, I think I got top 20 in that race one time, but it's a fantastic bicycle race and we get to actually ride. They have like a grand fondo kind of thing the day before that. So Saturday is open to the public, you, you know, pay a small fee, of course. And there's thousands of people riding out there on the same exact course that they'll be racing on the next day. Oh, cool. And that is so much fun for the nostalgia, especially when, you know, George and Gabby, uh, he gets so competitive as well. The last time we did it, we were absolutely <laughs> flat out on every one of the climbs on the cobblestones and just laughing our asses off and having so much fun. And God forbid, if someone would start racing us a little bit and George would, you know, <laughs> his ego couldn't take that. He's like, had to beat them down. Um, so yeah, Bobby Julik will be coming with us as well and um, hopefully meet up with a bunch of old friends. And the Freckle's coming as well. So Stuart O'Grady's coming back from Australia. The he hasn't freckle. been able to, the Freckle. The Freckle's coming over so he hasn't left Adelaide man in two yeah, years yeah, yeah. and that's got to be hard for someone who hasn't been home or hasn't, you know, when's the last time he hasn't been in Europe? Exactly. He's 16 or 17 years old. So anyway, I'm looking forward to reconnecting with a lot of people. And of course, yeah, looking forward to Tour de France this year. Yes. It's going to be a bit of a reunion. It sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun, probably a bit of drinking and, and, and riding bikes, Maybe. but <laughs> it sounds fantastic, mate. Well, this has been absolutely brilliant. It truly has. So thanks so much again for your time, mate, and just sharing your journey and your knowledge. It, it really has been wonderful. Um, so thanks, mate. Cheers, brother. Appreciate it. Oh, and one final thing I got to add, um, you are on any questions. If anybody's listening and they want to go to anyquestion.com forward slash Christian VDV, Christian VDV. So anyquestion.com forward slash Christian VDV. Thanks for you the can plug. check it out and use his link. Thanks everybody for listening. And uh, you can find all the show notes, timestamps and coupon codes and everything at bennettendurance.com forward slash media. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. 
Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time, and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.